What do grieving people wish their pastors knew about walking with them through a season of suffering? Nancy Guthrie is our guest this week discussing the best ways we can minister to grieving people. It's all on episode 73 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 73 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week we're talking with Nancy Guthrie. Nancy is a well-known Bible teacher and a sought-out conference speaker. She's written several books on how we minister to grieving and suffering people in our in our ministries. Uh, we wanted to talk to Nancy about her new book, What Grieving People Wish You Knew About What Really Helps and What Really Hurts. You want to hear Nancy share about her own story, seasons of pain and suffering in her own story, and how God taught her through those painful experiences. And now, here's my conversation with Nancy Guthrie. Well, Nancy, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show today. Um, I want to start by having you tell us a little bit of your story. You have uh, written so much and helped so many people, and I think it is important for us to start uh, with you sharing a little bit about about your own story. Um, My husband, David, and I, we have a son, Matt, who's in his 20s, and we also had a daughter named Hope and a son named Gabe who were both born with a rare metabolic disorder. And they each just lived for six months. And, you know, Andrew, I, I just think I, I didn't know how deeply people hurt <laughs> before that experience. That plunged me into a world of understanding uh, the deep sorrows that people go through and, and deep grief. Um, you know, after their deaths, there was such an overwhelming emptiness and sadness. And I was so attuned to the people around me in terms of what they did or didn't do, especially the first time. Mm. I had very high expectations for the people around me in terms of what they would say to me. Now, I was really humbled I remember about a month after my daughter Hope died, David and I were going to two funerals in one day, and we were in line waiting to speak to this couple who had just lost their child, and it hit me. I was like, what am I going to say to them? I I don't know what to say because I wanted to say something meaningful and something helpful, memorable even, and I just stumbled through it. And that was really the first time I was humbled to recognize that I didn't know what to say to people either. Of all, of all people, I thought, I should know, and I didn't. Mm. And I think lots of people are like that. Yeah, I think even um, pastors and ministry leaders feel that. And it, it's, it probably is a sense of insecurity for them to be like, man, I, I do a lot of funerals. I'm with people that are suffering all the time. But, but that's a challenge for them too. You know, thinking about our audience— what are some of the, the top things that when pastors hear news that, that somebody in their congregation has gone through a, a serious loss, a deep loss, what's, the, when, so what's some of the first things they should do? I like the question you're, in the way you're asking it because you're saying first things. Because I do think what you do and say a little ways down the road might be different than what you do on that day you show up when you go over to their house or the day of the visitation, the day of the putting the body in the ground or committal, whatever. So 
when you first show up, I think one of the most important things is to listen more than you talk, Mm. to really get a sense of where they are, to not make assumptions. Many of us tend to make assumptions about people and how they're feeling, especially if we've been through our own loss. We tend to assume that other people experience loss in the same way we do. Or maybe we assume that they're angry, and at least at this point, they're not. Uh, Maybe we assume they're feeling really sad, and at this point, they're still just in shock. Or maybe we assume that they're devastated about this parent who has died and that they have all of these great memories and they're you know, just so sad to have lost this parent when maybe they always had a really difficult relationship with this parent. And the reality is that they feel very conflicted. And so that means we need to go in with great humility and really be listening to invite them to talk to us about what they're thinking and what they're feeling. I think probably the second thing it's important for pastors to understand is to be patient and take your time. I think sometimes when we know we do have some good answers to the questions people are asking, we're in a hurry to tell them. And a lot of times, especially early on in grief, people are just, they're expressing the first thought that comes to their mind and their thoughts are chaotic. Anger is producing some thoughts, disappointment, confusion. Grief is so confusing So I think a lot of people, especially early on in grief, say things. It's almost like they're sending the idea out for a test drive. You know, how could God do this? Why would God do this? Those kind of things. And we can think when we enter into the situation that if they're asking that question, they're making that statement, that the most important thing for us to do is to answer it and to provide them a framework for figuring all of this out. But I would say early on, we just listen and agree. We just, maybe we even say, wow, I'm not sure I understand this either. But you know what? I'm here. And over the weeks and months, maybe years to come, we're going to go to God's word. And we're going to ask him to give us some insight into this. Um, Sometimes I think we are more impatient to fix people in the midst of grief than God is. God's a patient healer. He doesn't always heal instantly, and he doesn't always give insight instantly. And we need to be as patient with grieving people as God is and not expect we're going to fix everything in that first conversation or even the first initial conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that's so, so good because pastors are teachers. They're constantly leading by teaching. And so it's such a discipline to go into a situation and say, okay, I'm not teacher now. I am here to comfort them. And so because sometimes there are times where there might be pastor, do you have a word for me or yes. do you have something for me? So in those moments, how can a pastor engage without doing what you just cautioned? Well, I think, I think the key thing is hopefully as a pastor, your ministry has become all about pointing to people to the one place, the one person where we find hope, the one place and person we find security when our world has been rocked, Um, the one companion that we can trust to be there in the hardest, darkest of times. And so hopefully we've got really good instincts that rather than initially offering some kind of psychological help, that 
we're offering scriptural, biblical help. We're handing that person something solid to take hold of. And once again, we don't expect that it fixes everything. And, you know, the, the one thing, Andrew, that I think we often think fixes everything is that we say, well, you know, your loved one's in heaven. And that's a really good thing to know when we do have the sense that our loved one who has died is in Christ. We do want to know that, but I think sometimes as comforters, we make the mistake of thinking that the power of that hope, promise, reality, that it has enough power to overcome, eliminate sadness. (laughs) And it just doesn't. I, I remember so well about a month after my daughter Hope died, just going out on the back patio late one night, looking up in the stars and just saying to God, I know that she is with you, God, and I'm so grateful to know that. But it just feels so very far away from me. And so even as we do hand them hope in Christ, hope in God's promises that are very specific, which is to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That is really good news that we don't release those who are in Christ that we love. When they enter into death, they don't enter into an unknowing, uncaring nothingness. That when they walk through the door of death, that Christ is on the other side and he is there to take him to himself. It's, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us all that much about the, what I'll call the intermediate state, meaning that time when we are in the presence of Christ, our souls, long before the day when Christ returns again and we are resurrected and we are in the new heavens and new earth, body and soul. just doesn't tell us that much. But one thing it does emphasize is that we are with Christ. That's what Christ emphasized. Remember when the thief on the cross? Think about him. What's the hope that Christ offered to him, Christ said, today, you will be with me in paradise. And so certainly that is a hope that people, that a pastor can offer to someone. One of the things that really impacted me about this book is, is the temptation we all have of not wanting to make people sad, not wanting to make them cry. And I, I thought what you've shared about that is so good. What should a pastor, like, how should we think about, you know, when we're, when we're with somebody, how should we process their sadness? Well, I think the most important thing is to recognize, as you have said, that sadness is not the enemy. Sadness is not the problem that must be fixed. It makes sense that when you lose something, someone you love who has been so much a part of your life, that you're going to be sad. I might be more concerned about someone who shows no signs of sadness in that situation. So, but we can often think, okay, uh, like we talk about how is she doing? And if the report is he or she is really sad, we can hear that and think, oh, that's not good. Or we can think she needs, he needs someone to cheer him up, cheer her up, as if just sadness is a problem to be rid of at any cost. And You know, sadness is a place, Andrew. Sadness takes us to a place where we are desperate to hear God. Sadness 
gives us an opportunity for communion and fellowship with Christ. This one who said to his friends, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know, sometimes grieving people in the wake of loss can feel an anger toward God that alienates them or questions that they have for God that they feel like they've got to get answered. But I think one of the great opportunities of going through grief and being incredibly sad is we discover there that this Jesus that we may have always said we wanted to get close to, but our way of getting close to him was to come to church and take really good notes, (laughs) that instead we discover here's a way I can draw close to Christ because he understands deep sadness. He is a companion his Holy Spirit, who is the comforter. Maybe I've never sensed a need for that comfort before, but now I do. And so there can be some gifts in sadness when they cause us to long to enjoy the presence of Christ in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And talk about not wanting to make people cry. Yes. Yeah. Well, we see someone maybe in the hallway at church, and we think, oh, I haven't asked about their grief in a while. So maybe I'll ask it. And then we look at them, and maybe they're laughing, they're smiling. We think, oh, better not ask about it because he or she seems to be having a good day. And I don't want to bring them down. And so the assumption is if they look happy that they're not thinking about their grief, and we don't want to make them think about it or make them sad. And the reality is... I think of it as, you know, the grieving person, it's like, you know how with your computers, a lot of times you've got some programs running in the background. You don't see them on your desktop, but they are running in the background. Similarly, grief is always running in the background of that person who has lost someone they love. And when you are courageous enough, compassionate enough, Maybe not to ask for a report on their grief. Probably the question to ask is not how are you because then they feel like they have to give a report. But maybe you just let them know you have been thinking about the person who died. And so maybe you just ask them a question like or say something like, you know, we were out at the baseball fields the other day and I thought about all the times Joe and I sat on those bleachers and watched those games and I just missed them so much. And it made me think about how much you must miss him. And I made me wonder what are the times when you really miss him especially so you're not asking him for a report but you're inviting them to share with you something that they so want to talk about and so we can think okay maybe then the person begins to cry and we think oh I blew it I've made them cry I have done the wrong thing and I would just say to you no because you see that program was running in the back The sadness was there, but it was stuffed inside in a social situation. And you gave that person the opportunity to release some of that sadness. And at the same time, you demonstrated that the person that they love so much, the person that they're so afraid everyone is going to forget, that everyone's going to wipe out of their conscious thoughts, that you haven't forgotten, that you miss that person too. So maybe our first instinct can be to think we've done something wrong. But I would say to you, when you give that person the opportunity to release some of that grief in tears, you've given that person a great gift. Mm -hmm. I know, Nancy, that you have talked to a lot of people who are grieving, who are in the midst of grieving. And it kind of the the focus you take in this book is things that that, that are not helpful that people say and things that are. 
What are some of those things that people have said to you, this was really helpful when somebody said this to me? Well, I just talked about one of them, and that is to bring up that person's name yourself and let them know you haven't forgotten. I mean, if you think about it, especially if it's someone who lived in your home, think about how many times a day you said that person's name or you wrote it in emails or whatever, and then all of a sudden nobody wants to say their name. Everybody walks on eggshells thinking we can't talk about her or him. And so to keep saying that person's name is just like a balm to the soul of the person who died. So whatever you say, work in a way to say that person's name. The other thing I, in putting together the book, I ask grieving people, what is it you wish people understood? And one thing they told me over and over again is how much it means to them for people to share with them very special memories of the person who died. You know, sometimes we say general things like he was really a great guy or we'll say even, you know, idealize the person like she, she was everybody's friend or you could always count on her. And those are kind of general. And what grieving people really want to hear from you or to have written to them is very specific memories. I remember the time. We were sitting in Sunday school class, and, and then she said those kind of memories. Or I remember the time I, I really blew it, and he came up to me, and he said, you know what, you're so great at this. You're going to be, he deeply encouraged me, and I've never forgotten. Those are the kind of things that you can always talk about to someone who's grieving that they really want to hear. Mm. And I know you've mentioned already in our conversation a few things that you don't want to say. Are there other things that's like, you know, this is a temptation, but just, just don't, don't Let say that. Let me tell that. you the main one. Yeah. Or here's the general rule. Anything that elevates either yourself or someone else's grief and in the process diminishes theirs. So the goal in interacting with someone, think of this as your goal. How can I esteem their grief, value it, rather than minimize it? So there are different ways we do that. You know, one way, and here's the way my husband says it, Andrew. He says, if you're thinking of beginning a sentence with the words, well, at least, then just stop right there. Don't even say it. Because when we say, well, at least, our motive is we're trying to help them look on the bright side. We're trying to help them have perspective. And so we tell someone who's lost a child, well, at least you can have more children. Or we tell a young widow, well, at least you can get married again. Or we tell someone who cared for an infirm spouse for years, well, at least he isn't suffering anymore. Now, the thing is, it's not that those things are not true. And it's not that that person can't benefit from that perspective. The issue is what it serves to do is diminish their grief. It says, basically, you shouldn't be so sad. You don't have the right perspective about this. The way it feels to the grieving person is, this is just a small bump in the road. It's not a big deal. It shouldn't knock you off of your game. Because, see, you've got all this good stuff in front of you. So we don't want to say things that diminish their grief. The other thing is, and this applies both to people who are grieving a loss, people who are facing a death, People who are just going through perhaps a terminal diagnosis or some other health issue is, 
once again, that computer that is our brains, I feel like sometimes it's running and we we interact with someone and our brains are searching for a match. We're looking for a match to match up with whatever it is their experience is. And in that way, then we can talk about it in a way, let them know that we get it, that we've seen this before, that we understand. And our brain finds a match. It's like ding, ding, ding. There's a match. And then our tongue engages. And we start telling that person the story about somebody else we knew who this happened to. Or we begin telling about our own experience of grief. Or when this happened to me, such and such. Once again, all those things serve to diminish the loss of the other person. We tell them a story about someone else. What it says is, you're not that unusual. Don't think your grief is any big deal. Because this has happened to lots of people. Or when we start talking about ourselves, once again... We're taking the spotlight off of them and their great loss and sorrow, and we're putting it on ourselves, and that serves to diminish the grief. So I think a good rule of thumb, as you think about what you might say, is think, is what I'm going to, going to say, does it elevate, esteem their grief, or is it going to serve to diminish it? Hmm. And talk about, I know that you have a section in your book where you talk about the unique uh, circumstance of social media that, that sometimes, you know, we use social media. What are the right and wrong ways to use social media at these times? Well, this is something our parents didn't have to think about, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were just generally accepted social conventions for expressing grief. And of course, this is new territory for all of us. And we've got to navigate, figure out how to navigate social media and grief. I think anybody who's on social media recognizes that for some people, social media becomes a primary outlet for them to express what's going on. Maybe they're actually very awkward one-on-one to talk about their loss, but we find they post about it a lot. They post pictures of the person. You know, now that we've got the Facebook memories, you know, a picture pops up of them with that person and they're going to pass that along or they just talk about how sad they are. They're going to talk on social media about anniversaries, about birthdays, death days. They're going to be posting about perhaps events, fundraisers, projects in that loved one's memory. And I think sometimes as we observe someone who is grieving and they begin to do that, we start to think to ourselves, okay, enough. Either I'm tired of it or this isn't healthy for them. They're too obsessed with this. They're too focused. And so... We tend to think, okay, I don't want to feed the monster, and I don't, I don't want to endorse their continued focus on this. And so we withhold our comments or our pressing the like button or the heart button. And besides, I mean, it can seem a little weird to press like on a post that's talking about grief. But once again, in the, in the interaction I've had with grieving people and the way people responded to the survey I sent out when I asked them, What role did social media play in your grief? What they told me over and over again was how much it meant to them that there were times where they just sat by their computer and waited for a little ding, waited for it to show up that somebody pressed like or wrote a comment or wrote simply, I remember. Because, Andrew, if I tend to think that if we... If we were able to put grief into a pot on the stove and we boiled it down to its essence, what would be left in the pot would be a little pile of loneliness. Mm. 
grief is so desperately lonely. So when you see that person's post, and maybe your initial reaction is, I'm not sure I want to like that. Not sh- Are they still posting about that? What you need to understand is that loneliness has taken over in their soul, and they're just desperate to not feel so lonely in their grief. And so when you reach out to make a comment or to post something in response to it, you enter into their grief with them. You assuage some of their loneliness, and it is a great gift to them. Mm. I think for a lot of pastors, you know, they're thinking about what what makes a funeral powerful or how, how do I minister during funerals? What advice would you have to the pastor who may even be preparing for his first funeral, like the young pastor? Are there things that you've heard pastors say in a funeral that was like, that's really helpful? Well, I can tell you what my pastor said at the grave. Mm. I mean, this has been 17 years ago, Andrew. We stood by the grave of my daughter, Hope. And honestly, I could quote a lot of it to you Mm. because it mattered. It mattered in a way that wasn't just mere theological conversation. Mm. I can think of two things he said that were very significant to me. First of all, he he talked about, you remember that scene where Jesus feeds the 5,000, but then he says that if you want to be my followers, you've got to eat and drink my body and blood, and it says most people, most of the followers, you know, they turned away. And Peter, I think it is, comes up to him and he says, you know, this is a very hard saying. You know, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says to him, where would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And I remember my pastor sharing that at the grave. And it meant a lot to me because I was struggling with a lot of questions at that point about why this had happened and God's role in it. And yet there was also the sense of, but if I just become angry with God or turn away from him because he's allowed me to lose this one who was so precious to me, well, what then? I mean, Anything and everything apart from Christ is hopelessness. And only he has the words of eternal life. At that point, I wanted to see her again. I wanted to know that I would be with her again. And so those words were significant. The other thing I remember him saying was, this is where the gospel really matters. And I remember physically shaking my head. It's like, yes, it does. Because if the gospel isn't true, when you put the body of someone you love into the ground, that's the end. And there's no hope of resurrection. There's no hope of seeing them again. But along with that, at that place, I think more than ever before, especially if you're someone like me who grew up in the church and maybe you just took it all for granted for a lot of a lot of your life, you're asking, is this true? Or if I just bought into some kind of traditionalism or some club when it's not true. And I appreciated my pastor voicing that. And in a sense, it showed me that he understood I was asking the question. 
both of those very hard questions I've mentioned. But then he, he addressed them, and he affirmed that the gospel is true, and I needed that. Mm, that's so good. Nancy, I know you have a lot of different resources available to pastors and ministry leaders. Grief Share Curriculum, this new book, uh, What Grieving People Wish You Knew, about what really helps and what really hurts. Is there a place online where people can go and, and kind of see the resources that you that you put together? We well, can go to nancyguthrie.com, and there you'll see uh, all of my Bible study books. I've done a number of Bible study series, and then there's a section on grief and loss. Um, you know, probably the heart of my ministry to grieving people is a book I wrote a number of years ago called Hearing Jesus Speak Into Your Sorrow. It's a book I wrote a few years out of that loss as I really struggled to understand God's sovereignty in suffering. And so that's one. If you want to enter in to understand the deep questions your people are asking, and hopefully you would find there's some very biblical answers to that question, that would be a good one. But yes, this what grieving people wish you knew about what really helps and what really hurts. It's really pastors, elders. I I mean, I could just see having all of the uh, shepherds of people at your church, your women's ministry leaders, read it and you know, it's just been out a couple of weeks, Andrew, and one thing I've heard a couple of times from people, they've told me how much they've appreciated reading it, but they did have a, a response of sorrow themselves in that they looked and they thought about ways they'd failed people in the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they saw themselves in some of those things that I say, this is probably not a good thing to say, or this is something that, that can tend to be hurtful. Why go more years making those same mistakes? And so it's really would be my joy that this would really equip people to enter in. Because sometimes I think we avoid hurting people because we're so afraid we'll say the stupid thing. We'll say the thing that does hurt more than help. And so it's really my desire that this what grieving people wish you knew about what really helps and what really hurts would help people to know those things. Mm. But we'll link to all those resources in the show notes. Thanks so much for being with us. A a very powerful, helpful conversation that I think a lot of pastors will listen to more than once. Thanks thanks. so much, Andrew. Thanks again to Nancy Guthrie for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, and consider sending this episode to someone you know who might benefit from listening to it. Also, make sure to download the show notes for this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. The show notes always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guest top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for guests you'd love to hear us talk to on the podcast, email us at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.